Welcome to the Open Book Podcast. This podcast contains a poem with explicit language. If you're listening in public or listening where there are children, you might want to skip through the reading of the poem today. Morning, Marjorie. Hey, Claire. How are you today? Good, thanks. How are you? Fine, thanks. I can't believe we're into February already. It feels like 2020 only just got started. 2022 even. (laughs) (laughs) Although I'm never, never sad to see the back of January. I know. You have a thing against January. I'm going to admit right now that I have a thing against February. So bring on March. But that said, this month we have something to get us through, which is we've got a whole month of stories. We're part of that enormous Year of Scotland Stories project put together by Event Scotland. And we're going to be looking at stories up and down Scotland and asking you all to tell us your stories of what your life in Scotland is like. And we're going to be sharing those later in the year in a number of events and we'll be publicizing those through our social media channels and on our website so do keep looking out for them we're hoping we're going to have some excellent storytelling sessions again the length and breadth of the country sharing the stories that we're going to be hearing this month in our groups i know i feel like it was genius to do stories in february it feels like kind of curry up by the fire listen to stories tell your own stories dredge up those stories of your you know family and it feels like the right time of year and i think I think as a nation, we've got a culture of storytelling. Lots of different nations do. And we've got a gorgeous story from Linda Wardle to share this morning. And there's a lot in this story that makes me think of my family and, and lots of images that I recognise. Yeah, and then we're going to follow it up with Hannah Lavery's Scotland Do No Mine poem. And that's going to be the basis of a lot of our work through our groups this month, talking about what, what makes Scotland yours and the stories that might draw you into that feeling of belonging to a place, I guess, or feeling at home. But we'll get to that when we get to the poem. Shall we crack on with the story? Yeah, shall I start? Yeah, thanks. Her Zoggies by Linda Wardle The aunties, Vinnie, Shell and Bets, come for tea at two o'clock every Thursday and they always arrive together. They know to come on time. On the dot, my mother says. They're not my real aunties, but everyone who is older than you must be addressed as auntie or uncle. The night before the aunties arrive, my mother bakes fruitcake made with tea and marmalade. The sharp tang of bicarbonate leaves its fizzy trace long after I've chewed and swallowed. We bake piles of neat herzogies that look like jammy sun hats. My father and I wait in hope for the first batch to be overcooked or even a little burned, knowing that my mother will never serve these offerings to the aunties then he and I can eat the rejected pastries warm from the oven with a glass of milk. The good ones that have measured up to her standards are for the vrendy mince, the strangers, and will not be allowed to touch our lips. Her face is red with concentration. She wipes her hands often on her pinny. I am allowed to help with baking, but there are only certain tasks I am trusted with, mostly to do with measuring a quarter cup of flour and two ounces of butter on the rickety scale. I manage a few hefty turns around the bowl before she wrestles the dish and spoon away from me to begin the solid womp, womp, swirling thick mixture about in the bowl. 
With quick turns of the spatula, she cleans away any flour that may have escaped the spoon and begins again, mixing it back into the batter. How her food appears to the world is the most important thing to my mother, even possibly more important than how it tastes. The edges must be perfect. No stray coconut flecks or sugar granules spilling over the pastry. Sandwich squares precisely stacked with not a strand of cheese or lettuce flopping over a crust. Often, in her effort to get a cake beautifully brown, she will bake it too long and despite its glorious outward appearance, it will be dry and hard to swallow. Our baking sessions are not about chatting or showing me recipes from her battered copy of the Royal Hostess cookbook, a wedding present from my father. Instead, our baking is about conquering ingredients, controlling flour, butter and fruit. It is about showing the pastry who is boss. Above all, it is about putting her best foot forward, showing the world she is the perfect hostess. And we are a happy family, putting on its happiest face for all to see. But for me, our baking is a team task. She shows me exactly how things should be done, and I am careful to get them right. When I do things well, she tells me I am a good girl. That is what love feels like, and it's the best feeling in the world. I'm going to stop there so we can talk about that first section. Yeah, there's so much to talk about. Okay, first question. How old is this person in your head? I think she is about eight. Old enough to be trusted with measuring and looking at the scales and getting the numbers right. But she's not old enough to be railing against this control of her mother and not being allowed to do the things that she wants to do. I think she's a bit older in my head, certainly young enough to think that being a good girl is is a version of love. So under the age of (laughs) teenager, I think she maybe is a bit older and the mum strikes me as a complete control freak. So I'm not sure she would have allowed an eight year old to measure out the flower, maybe more like 10, 11, 12, because she doesn't strike me as a mum who's quite easy ozy because eight year olds often get things like that wrong. She strikes me as quite a precise little girl. Yeah. For fear of not being a good girl. You know, I'm curious about this idea of having to put your best foot. I mean, of course you put your best foot forward when you've got visitors, or at least I do. And I certainly come from a culture where if someone is coming to your house, you know, you do, you put your best foot forward, you bring out those biscuits you've been saving or the ones that you've made or whatever. But, you know, you want things to be nice for others. But what's curious to me is that this happens every week. Mm. You know, no offense to you, Claire, but if you were coming around every week, well, if you come around anytime, you just get the same biscuits I'm eating. But, you know, the idea that we would regularly bake and have it to have it be perfect every week is interesting to me. Well, that made me wonder if when the story was set, because that sort of idea of having someone round to have something homemade, home baked every week really reminds me of my granny who would have would have the ladies from the bridge club round. They would meet at bridge club and play bridge and then she would see them socially later in the week and she would always be making scones or pancakes or a Victoria sponge. And I wonder if it's a generational thing because, you know, the reality is, you know, if it went awry, I'd be like, ah, sorry guys, the scones are a bit burned this week. Like, whatever. The key is for us to be hanging out and having a laugh. Whereas I just think generationally that might not have been true. And I, I was about to say, these can't be very good friends if she's got to bake perfection every week. But actually, maybe they were. Maybe it was just a 
different way of you know holding yourself out there's a lack of equality i guess in this arrangement not only does it feel for me that she's controlling what happens with her daughter but it feels like she's controlling the situation and the socializing they have to arrive on the dot they have to arrive together if that was happening i think in our generation everyone would bring something or certainly you would take it in turns yeah it's thursday cake day you know i'm bringing this you bring you know it would be a joy but those friendships maybe generations ago or a different kind of friendship and and private lives were maybe more private i feel like our generation is much more in each other's pockets as it were you know in terms of knowing more about you know what was happening in people's lives or yeah that whole you know what goes on behind closed doors idea yeah i think it my grandmother's generation probably wouldn't have known all that much about what was going on not that there was much going on but you know say my grandparents they did fight you know cuz i know that cuz i've heard the stories from my aunties and uncles but pretty sure my grandparents friends wouldn't have known that whereas i think maybe the next certainly our generation my pals probably know more about my life than they would have about my grandparents and also i don't love the mum i have to say i mean it's hard for us because we're mums of lots of children right but i think that whole perfection is a real shame actually because yes I know you know what they say and I've said it to my children a hundred times you know you have to measure with baking you have to be precise with baking it's not a bit of like I'll just throw a bit of something else in there you know that's not entirely true there is a lot of room for creativity or you know but certainly it's not something it's just she used the word it has to be something to be mastered like the dough has to be mastered that's a worrying thought yeah and it doesn't sound to me that it would be that nice if you've treated it like that it feels like you've pounded it into submission yeah and that idea of no stray coconut and nothing spilling over everything has to be precise those are the best bits when you get the extra coconut that yeah or a little crispy bit because a bit sugar has caramelized or you know that idea of controlling the flour butter and fruit it almost strikes me as someone who doesn't really know how to bake or doesn't have an affinity for baking, having to bake every week and having to be perfect. So it treats it like a science rather than a joy. And it kind of wondered, I mean, I kind of wondered about the taste of bicarbonate. You shouldn't be able to taste Yeah, no, I was thinking that, yeah. <laughs> if it's still fizzing on your tongue afterwards, you've not measured it properly. Yeah, or it's just, we've all had that experience where you can taste the baking soda and something. It's not nice. It's not just for me, the, the batter that she's trying to control strikes me that she has controlled her daughter she shows me exactly how things should be done and if i get them right i'm a good girl that's not a great exchange i don't think it's not a like it's baking time come and help you know it's a yeah it just strikes me as another version i mean of baking your child effectively there are there is an order to do things in which case it turns out you will turn out well and she definitely craves to be that good girl which makes me feel like she knows what the opposite is. But she also loves it when things go badly and then she and her dad get to sit with a glass of milk and eat the other bits. Yeah, that was a really beautiful image. I enjoyed that. The other thing that I really recognize is her royal hostess cookbook. Now, we don't have that. We had our the Betty Crocker cookbook. The equivalent here is either the Delia Smith Complete Cookery Course or... Um, the good housekeeping cookery course. And the thing I love about cookbooks that have been passed on to you is where you find the splatters and they give away the favourite pages and the favourite recipes. And every so often you turn to a pristine one and it almost puts me off. <laughs> it makes me think, oh, this can't be very good. But you just go back to the favourites, don't you? Yeah, but I think there's now a sort of move towards cookbooks not just being the recipes, so being the 
stories that come along with them and the way the person stumbled on the recipe or the modifications that they made to the recipe before they put it in this particular book. And I almost love reading cookbooks as much as I love making and baking the recipes. Yeah. What was that amazing cookbook from America? You know, I, I would read the recipes just because it felt like I was hanging out with a oh, friend. Um, Smitten Kitchen. Yeah, she was just so funny. And she reminded me at a time when I was particularly homesick of my girlfriends in the States, the way she talked about things like, oh my God, my Auntie Maya, she wouldn't give me her sauce. She wouldn't give me her sauce. I've been trying. I did this. And the, you know, the chat ahead of it was just what I was actually reading it for. And I'm not like you. I don't normally like cookbooks like that. But that one really, you know, sort of satiated a, a need from home. And it had a really funny recipe. And I think our kids still make it. It's like popcorn cookies. Yeah, I was just going to say exactly <laughs> the same thing. It's got a brilliant brisket recipe in it. But the one that um, my kids go to it for is the popcorn cookies where you make the popcorn first and then you incorporate it into the cookie dough. Sounds Maybe. gross. Tastes delicious. Yeah, bizarrely <laughs> delicious. Anyway, <laughs> that's kind of, we could we could talk for, about cookbooks for the rest of this podcast, but maybe we should read the rest of the story and see how this family gets on. Okay, I'll pick up. Vinny, Shell, and Betts all drive their own cars. As they unfold themselves from their vehicles and swoop across the front porch, twittering and laughing, their fragrance arrives before they do. Magnolia and lavender, cigarette smoke and breath mints. Hello, anyone home? They laugh a little at this, ringing the doorbell, knowing we're inside waiting for them. For goodness sake, my mother says, fussing with a lace doily whose glass beads won't lie flat. Quick, I'm busy. You go and answer the door, she whispers, her eyes dark with panic. I run to open the front door and the aunties sweep past in a rush of smoky air and pause to coo over me. Look how you've grown, Lynn. Shall look at those long legs, just like a runner. And how is everything at school? But before I can line up the thoughts in my head and bolt facts onto proper words, they've moved on and are talking about something else. Lynn says Auntie Shell, stretching out a hand and looking around the lounge. Be a love and get me an ashtray. Where is your mom? She lights her cigarette, flicking the lid of a slim gold lighter closed to damp the flame. I'll go and get her, I say loudly, although they've already forgotten about me as I hurry to the kitchen, anxious that my mother has left me to entertain the three graces on my own. Mom, I say, come on, they're looking for you. She jumps at my voice as though I am a very loud, unexpected noise in her head. Putting down the knife, she unties her apron, making sure it's neatly folded before she pushes it back in the drawer. Come on then, she says, and I follow her down the passage, carrying a plate of cheese scones, careful to keep them from tilting off the plate and onto the floor. When we enter the lounge, she says in her best hostess voice, Oh, hello, everyone her voice suggesting delight at how they all came to be here on time together in her house at two o'clock on this particular Thursday afternoon. The aunties could never guess as they bite into the lightest Victoria sponge how violently the air has been beaten into the cake. As they grip dainty sandwiches between thumb and forefinger, they could not know how closely the butter has been scraped to the edge of the blue ribbon crusts just narrowly avoiding oozing over the sides. They are nibblers, a small bite, and then the sandwich is placed back on the plate, forgotten as another cigarette is lit. 
My mother and I keep secret the battle for perfection that has been waged in the kitchen on their behalf. This is a kind of closeness like comrades must have during wartime. Only we know the hours spent beating, buttering, arranging. My mother and I do not flinch as bits of crumb explode, missing the plate, balanced, and landing on the carpet. Hmm. I'm not sure I like the three graces any better. No, they don't really give Lynn much time of day, do they? Okay, so in my head, this is now in the 50s. Yeah, I think so. The smoking in someone else's house, definitely. <laughs> and it feels like 50s America, because she uses the word mom rather than mum. And blue ribbon is a kind of bread, I think, or butter. Yeah, it's definitely a, it's a, definitely a, a brand that I recognize. But why is the mum surprised? I mean, why is she so nervous? It's that whole control thing, isn't it? As soon as someone else comes into your house, you have to relinquish control just a little bit. You don't know exactly what they're going to do. I wonder if if that's the what's nerve-wracking for her. I think that sense of doing what's right or doing what's expected seems to just override all the decisions she makes about everything. It's quite a sad state of it. It doesn't feel like she does much that she wants to do or much for her. No, and you can almost like picture the lounge and its perfection, you know, and them trying not to go after the one crumb that's fallen on the floor. I do recognize that camaraderie, you know, so when we had dinner parties when we were younger and we did, you know, my mom would kill herself sometimes, kill herself cooking. And in her case, after often after a long day's work, you know, and then people would arrive and say, oh, you know, this is amazing. You must have spent all day. And she'll go, oh, no, nothing, you know. And I knew full well she'd spent eight hours before they arrived preparing for their arrival. So yeah, there is a, I recognize that kind of camaraderie and underplaying the effort. I recognize as well that at the beginning of an event where you haven't seen people, you know, or people have just arrived, we almost have that fake of it so how are you how was your day which is like it's quite an odd thing to be saying to people especially people you see every week but you still kind of go through the motions and then you really more settle into or would normally more settle into being relaxed and enjoying their company though I'm not sure that the mum in this does ever relax and settle into the enjoying the company it's almost like she's in the kitchen stealing herself for the arrival and she's like she's in so in her own world She's surprised at her daughter's voice, but she, she knows that they're there. And the word panic was interesting. You know, the doorbell goes, I quite often, I write quite often do that, right? So the doorbell goes and I'll think, say to the kids, oh, I'm just in the middle of, you know, you get it. And they're always like, mom, it's your friends at the door. Like, you know, I recognize that. But that idea of like that sending you into some kind of panic tells you so much more about her friendship with these women than anything else, I think. You know, the perfectionism might just be that she's a perfect or wants to be a perfect baker. But the idea that she feels panic as her friends have arrived and she's not quite ready tells you, more. I think, a lot more about, rather than being like, get in here and get the plates out with me, ladies, you know, which is probably what I would say. There's none of that. It's like they're shown into the sitting room. And the fact that she feels like, the daughter feels like she's been left to entertain the grown-ups comes from that whole, you know, setting expectations and how the afternoon's going to run because she's not really she's just got to let them in leave them to it they'll entertain themselves but she obviously feels some sort of pressure or stress or want again wants to do the right thing it feels like entertaining rather than pals coming around which is different isn't it and also you know i mean as a baker <laughs> oh i'd love to ask linda about this you don't beat the heck out of a cake because 
you ruin it. You know, you don't want to over, you don't want to over mix a cake because you, it goes flat. There's some of that that makes me think she's, she's overdoing it and actually to her peril. The less you need scones, the better. Those sorts of things that we know if you do it often enough and are really interested in making something that tastes perfect rather than looks perfect. That's something we haven't talked about because anyone who's eaten my baking knows that looks matter far less than what it actually tastes like. I could probably do with a bit more of the of the mom's character in my baking. In, it says earlier in the story that she doesn't seem to really care what it tastes like as long as it looks okay. Yeah, and I think that's a really great metaphor for whatever else is happening, not just in the house, but in her friendships as well, as long as it looks right. You know, the baking just seems to be one more extension of that. I'm not sure the girl has that view since she wants to eat the burned ones. But there's another sadness in the final paragraph for me as well, that it's this sort of comrades during wartime that brings them together. And that's what they have to share, the hours spent. You know, it's not described as I love baking with my mum, we have great laugh. There's nothing in the world that would make me do this something like that every Thursday. I think I'd lose my mind. I think that's a nice feeling if it happens once a year, like everybody mugs in and it's a bit like being in the trenches and we get on with it, but not every Thursday. I don't know what that would do to your child. The idea of entertaining and hosting and having people in and welcoming them in is one thing, but as you say, it feels that this is done at at quite a cost to the mom and the daughter. You wonder what would happen if she said, right, it's your turn next Thursday. Yeah, and also these are people who she knows really well. I yeah, they're friends. I yeah. just had someone arrive from abroad and I ended up spending quite a lot of time with her, you know, that I just hadn't anticipated the visitor particularly or the time and I really enjoyed it. And of course I cook. That's a one time out of the blue visitor. It's not every Thursday with, who are with three pals who are supposed to be my good friends because also you would think if they had any sense if they were real friends and had any sense of how much this cost her they would as you say take in turns or come and help or something make it once a month yeah (laughs) yeah once a month yeah it's a lovely story but it doesn't it feels like more about um the stories we tell rather than it's of course about the baking but it's about for me it's about the stories like what we project yeah the the, image that we want the outside world to see yeah and and the reality goes on behind yeah whereas i think hannah's poem is the opposite of that in many ways it's just telling the truth and cutting through the sweetness a little bit shall i read hannah's poem just just with a reminder for everyone listening again that there are explicit words in this so if you are listening in a public place or other children are around you might want to skip this bit. Scotland you're no mine. Scotland you're no mine. You are no his and I don't want you. So go ahead say I don't belong with your sepia tinged cross eye sweeping all over that swept away blood-stained sweat-stained sugar for your tablet. Your macaroon. You rotten, gobby, greedy, thieving bastard, you. Sitting atop all that shite and broken bones, weeping. Poor me. Fuck you. I will dance jigs on your flags, blue and white, blue, white and red. Doesn't matter. But you wee chancer. Fuck for making us complicit. Handing us whip and chains, an officer's coat, a civil service pen, a queen to love. And lay me out, I love you, with your mountain time and all your cootie in. And you can say, I didn't belong to you. Go on, 
but I am limpent stuck on you. So fuck you for no seeing one of your own. I will hear, I will spill here. My blood and your secrets bleed into you, root and earth, and you, forever pagan, will in the spill and the seep see all you really are. So fuck you, my sweet, forgetful Caledonia. With love, fuck you. Well, that's telling it how it is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I think she goes right through the thing of not putting on pretenses and telling us the truth, which is good and bad. It's not all negative here. And I think what's so clever about what she does here is that she just picks up on so much of the Scotland that Scotland projects of itself. The poor me, poor we hard done by Scotland and the mountain time and Kurian in. But with it all, she just weaves in that stained sugar and the reference to the flags. I just think it's a really, really clever way of, as you say, of telling it as it is. It reflects that idea that nothing is exactly how it seems and nothing is ever black or white. Um, And in this case, it's about race as much as anything else, particularly for Hannah, who's mixed race. And, you know, that idea that her dad didn't really belong here or Scotland tried to make him not belong even though he was Scottish too you know and so I think it comes from that idea of like I belong because this is where I'm from where else am I supposed to belong and yet I don't belong and you you're always reminding me of that and so I'm kind of stuck and also you're stuck with me you know, so it's not as clear as saying I don't belong or I do belong. There's somewhere in the middle in the same way that her assessment of Scotland is somewhere, you know, it's the truth rather than being, you know, we, we like to categorize things. And I think what she's doing here is saying none of it, including who we are, is categorizable in any definitive way. And I think that Scotland has a bit of a history of saying it was near us. Yeah. You know, I think when it comes to, I mean, even the textbooks that the Scottish exam board use for their history exams, there's a sense of, oh, well, all that bad stuff was happening in England, but didn't, Scotland didn't do it. And you'll hear people saying, oh, but there's no racism in Scotland. Uh, yeah. You know, which we all fundamentally know is just blatantly untrue. Yeah, well, and um, also just go read Hannah's work because yeah, know, exactly. she's talking about racism towards herself, but also generations in her family. And of her experience, this is not anecdotal or somebody said, somebody said something. This is as it happened to her. The difficulty here is that, you know, for people like me or even others who have one parent that's from somewhere else, you know, you can be told, and I, and I have been told recently, that you should go back to the place that you're from. You know, if you don't like it here, go home. That's been said to me in a very public place while I was on stage. You know, for Hannah and for so many other Scots, this is home. You know, there isn't even somewhere else to point to. And so, you know, that's that thing of tell me I don't belong is really difficult because, you know, the question obviously arises, where are you telling me to go? This is generations of this. You know, it's not just, she's not just a first generation, it's generations of it. So it's that really complicated relationship with uh, the idea of home and belonging with love, fuck you, is really strong. (laughs) It's undeniable that this is home and there's so much that that you do love about it because it's the only thing you know. Um, Apart from anything else, it's what else are you supposed to do? But I love that idea that, you know, you're stuck with me and my, you know, I will end up here. I'm rooted here. So kind of, but also I'm limpet stuck on you. That's a beautiful image. Uh, Despite it all, you're mine. 
And there's something in that image as well that you think of as, you know, the limpet with the hard shell on it. You know, you feel like the voice in this has had to put on a hard shell to survive. Yeah, and limpets are only ever on their own, which I think is complicated too. And the next line is, you know, screw you for not seeing one of your own. I think that for me is the crux of the whole poem. You didn't, you're not seeing one of your own, which I think... As you say, people go, oh, no, that's not true. But it is, it is true. And forgetful Caledonia, is that what you think is the idea that we don't think we were complicit in Scotland? Yeah, or, or we choose what we want to remember. You know, we, c- we can remember the history of the Battle of Bannockhorn pretty well. Ask any kid in Scotland what year it took place and they'll tell you. Um, but, you know, the, the less, the more embarrassing, the, the less proud the uh, parts of history well you know they're conveniently often forgotten I think and sepia tinged must mean that that idea that we look back through a kind of sepia tinge for me is softening isn't it yeah it's 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 blurring out the wrinkles and you know blurring out the the harsh realities and just putting it in soft focus and then the idea that we're somehow complicit we put lots of people you know we into wars and into officers coats and suddenly you become part of a of a problem rather than being othered out of it as it were or exempted from it it's that whole idea of picking and choosing isn't it what you want to take on from your history and what you don't love the queen to love you know whatever you think about the queen you know the idea that you 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 know in Scotland you still have a queen to love um, br- brings a smile to my face. You know you've given us it's like a teddy bear almost. You've dangled this thing that we all you know it's hard not to love in the sense that she's just a you know an older woman. It's it's hard to pick a bone with really. You can, I'm sure some of you out there can do. But she's a person who's given a life of service, regardless of what you think about what she's given that service to. You know she is someone who has unfailingly been put put others before herself for her whole life well yeah and it's not much of a life really i mean again whatever you think of the monarchy it's not what i would choose (laughs) certainly (laughs) and i don't don't know yeah so many people around the world follow what's happening in the royal family because it's almost like this is sacrilege but you know it's almost like watching downton abbey you know it's like what's happening now with you know this is a bit of a soap opera really a very glamorous and um, sometimes not very glamorous storyline really but the idea that somehow by watching it, we're complicit in, in something bigger than ourselves, which also at the same time we're being told we don't belong to. So really, there's so much in this poem, so many contradictions in this poem to unpack. I'm hoping that our groups will absolutely love listening to it and picking it apart and then coming up with their own versions, which is, which is our plan. And with Hannah's consent, we're going to be looking at our own versions of what's ours in Scotland across our groups this month. It's a hard act to follow, though, I should say. It is, yeah. I mean, I'm already thinking about what poem we're going to read next. (laughs) (laughs) It stands up to a comparison with this one. So, yeah. So thank you to Hannah for letting us have this poem in this podcast. We'd be grateful. We'd love to hear what you think of it out there. It's a tough one, but I think a really important one, particularly as we think about Scotland's stories this month and across this year. I think you'll encounter this in lots of different places, but it's the year of Scotland's stories. So we're looking forward to hearing yours. I think that's all we've got for today. Thank you again for letting us be in your ears. And we look forward to joining you next month for our next Unbound podcast.